Hi, everybody. Cheryl Ackeson here. Welcome to another edition of the Cheryl Ackeson podcast on justthenews.com. As you may know, I'm a nonpartisan investigative journalist who tries to bring you news and information that others try to hide or simply don't report or report only one side of. You can pre-order my new book, Slanted, How the News Media Taught Us to Love Censorship and Hate Journalism. You can pre-order Slanted anywhere now and show your support for this kind of journalism. Today, America's culture clash, largely happening in a few big cities and stoked by the media at the height of a presidential campaign, has reached a crescendo. There are many signs we should have seen this coming. Numerous factors paved the way as to where we are now, and we will talk today analytically about some of those factors. We're back. Today, the highest media coverage is generally given to alleged attacks by police, with little national news coverage quantifying the attacks against policing authorities or highlighting the inherent dangers of the job, how many times they're killed for not acting quickly enough on a routine stop when somebody happens to reach for something around his or her belt or doesn't obey strict orders and then pulls out a knife and does something dangerous against the police. Almost always, um, national media outlets mention a race in a story of a confrontation. If a white officer is accused of impropriety against a black suspect, But rarely is race mentioned, even though it's a more frequent occurrence, when an officer of any race is accused of impropriety against white suspects or other similar situations. Yes, it happens. It is mentioned in the media. But most often, it happens when it's the other way around. And one thing that's interesting about this to me is this used to be verboten, at least the way I was taught in journalism school. I was taught that we were to only mention race when it is a factor in a story and that we could not presume it's a factor absent evidence or unless it was a description being given of somebody by the police. Let's say they were looking for someone who was on the run and he was a white man in his 40s, a long beard and a tattoo on his knuckles. Then we would mention race, but not when it was not a factor that had been proven to be a factor. Anyway, I realize this sounds crazy under today's practices, but under those original rules, If I had been covering the death of George Floyd, I would not have automatically said the officer was white and the suspect was black unless there were evidence of a racial component. And I would not have been allowed as a journalist to assume there was a racial component simply because of the race. It would have to have been something more tangible, such as witnesses overhearing the officer using racial slurs. It doesn't mean that this is not something that can't be reported down the road that when a racial component is alleged or charged or evidence comes up perhaps in the background of the officer that we wouldn't report that as a factor. It was just that simply initially we were taught that we were not supposed to to automatically see or presume race as a factor. And part of the rationale at the time was they didn't want reporters uh, talking about local crimes and continuously saying a white man or a black man or a Asian man committed a crime as if the race mattered in the crime or had something to do with the crime. But today we do talk about race frequently, especially when it falls one way, and there's just so many different other factors at play. But back to the notion of 
turning on police and authorities as a phenomenon in recent years that led us to today's climate of division and what we're happening, what we're seeing now, calls to defund the police, violent attacks of those who disagree with you, unlawfully taking down statues without a legal process. Well, first you can look at recent attacks on Customs and Border Protection agents, again, framed around the illegal immigration issue. There have been fairly common attacks on CBP agents. Last fiscal year, more than 600 were reported, but they get very little news coverage. On the other hand, oversized news coverage is given to any allegations against a Border Patrol agent. Not that those things shouldn't be reported. I'm not making that argument. I'm just saying and observing that an atmosphere has been created where there's a lot of sentiment stoked against the authorities when it comes to CBP. And same with ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement. The vocal movement to abolish ICE is a precursor to the calls to abolish the police that we're hearing now. Activists in the recent past have called ICE agents terrorists and referred to their work as terrorism. And the feds have acquiesced to protesters in many ways. For example, by limiting their arrests of illegal immigrants at courthouses, such as in family and small claims court, obviously this is all telling activists they can get results. By shaping the court of public opinion, they can cause official agencies, even if they don't agree, to change their practices and maybe make it, in this case, where courthouses are kind of no-go zones for illegal immigrant arrests, where ICE agents have been barred from coming in and doing their job in some cases, depending on where they try to do it. In other words, the ICE agents are made into the bad guys, whereas the illegal immigrants who are not really technically allowed to be in the U.S. are protected. Another factor I wanted to point out is the phenomenon of sort of making it where we expect police to be social workers. There's been a great deal of effort put in the idea that police should do social work and kind of please the community and fit in rather than police the community. And again, there may be many reasons and ideas as to why this is a good thing. On the other hand, though, there are those who say some of that wastes and misuses resources to try to tell a law enforcement officer with specific training in enforcing crime that they should go into a community and spend their time striking up a basketball game with a few kids to try to get them not to hate cops. In other words, I get it, but I do think there is a question of whether that's the best use of resources. Is that what police and law enforcement officers should be doing? And maybe that's where this thought kind of dovetails a little bit with the notion of reforming police agencies. Perhaps there are some who do more social work leanings that could do policing with an emphasis on social work versus the law enforcement officers with the training in how to deal with violent criminals and very dangerous situations who maybe their time is better spent focusing on a different aspect of crime control. The final factor that I want to talk about, about where we are today, is censorship of free speech. And you may say, well, when you talk about censorship, really only the government can censor technically under the technical definition of censorship. Well, in my new book that's coming out in November, Slanted, I argue there's a new definition of censorship, that it can be censorship even when it's committed by the news or social media, because these organizations are now so inextricably tied in with the government in many ways. Either they want to do something to censor information 
to do the government's bidding because they want to escape regulation. And if they don't do the government's bidding, they could find themselves facing tighter restrictions. Or they have contributed to politicians and political figures to try to make it where the government will go easy on them as long as they follow the government's bidding or certain political leanings. So all of this blends the separation where there maybe once was one. I think now what we're seeing in social media and the news qualifies as censorship. In any event, what you can say and cannot say or talk about has been systematically redefined and narrowed really in the past decade dramatically. Activists argue that speech they don't like is the same thing as violence, a violent attack, and so is unacceptable and must be stopped. And recent history has taught us that activists can use social media to amplify their opinions that may actually be in the minority or facts that may be untrue, but it works to successfully controversialize those who disagree. It can shout down counterpoints and redefine the parameters of what's acceptable and legal to talk about in society, no matter what the law says. So looking at all of these factors and with an election fast approaching, I think it's easier to see why and how we could be at a place today where activists are organizing to establish autonomous zones where the rules and laws don't apply, they get to make them up, where they're confiscating public and private land to do this with virtually no repercussions, Remember, remember sanctuary cities where they kind of are calling their own shots? Non-enforcement of federal marijuana laws? The rules are different here. Not surprising they would want to abolish or defund the police or think it's okay to throw a brick at an officer and cry foul if the officer tries to defend him or herself. They have no problem in some cases smashing a police car with a brick. Remember calls to abolish ICE and attacks on our border officials? As far as violating laws by pulling down statues, why not? Forcefully taking control is tolerated in some cases. Why go through the local city council or get petitions to try to build sentiment on your side when you can skip all that, even if you're in the minority, and just take what you want by force, and it works? Where does all of this take us? It's hard to say. I mean, are we too far gone to roll things back? Maybe some of you are thinking, Nothing needs to be rolled back. Maybe this is progress. The new way things operate in a new America where free speech is an antiquated notion and certain laws are only meant for certain people and places. A lot is to be decided in the coming months in terms of direction. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Check out justthenews.com and don't forget to subscribe to the Cheryl Ackeson podcast. Leave a review, share it with your friends. Same with my other podcast, Full Measure After Hours, and all of the Just the News podcasts wherever you like to listen. And you might want to sample the newest Just the News podcast with my friend Scott Rasmussen. It's called Number of the Day. And every day, Scott takes a polling number and breaks down its meeting from who's ahead in the presidential race to how America feels about the issue of the race or the economy, and a lot more. It's a good way to start your day and cut through the headlines with Number of the Day, a new podcast. You can find it on justthenews.com or wherever you like to listen. And if you like my podcast, I guarantee you're going to love my new book, Slanted, How the News Media Taught Us to Love Censorship and Hate Journalism. I hope you'll consider supporting independent journalism and pre-ordering Slanted anywhere today. Do your own research, make up your own mind, Think for yourself.